All right, welcome to Bible Boot Camp. Tonight we are in the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, right past the, uh, the Thessalonian uh, letters, and right before 2 Timothy. That's right, 1 Timothy. We are going to be studying this book uh, t- uh, tonight and tomorrow morning, uh, Lord willing. My intent is to make it verse by verse all the way through this. Um, as you're coming in, uh, you'll notice there's two handouts for you to grab. Uh, one of these is uh, basically an outline that's kind of spaced out. So if you're into writing down notes, this might aid you in that. Uh, no pressure to use it, but there you go. It's oriented around the outline that we have uh, for you tonight. And then this other sheet, it says the book of First Timothy. This is an introductory sheet that I do for any book that I'm studying afresh. And it kind of, you work through like who wrote it, who, who they write it to, when did he write it, what are some of the circumstances. Uh, give you a little map there just to orient you. And then on the back, you'll notice that it says an outline of 1 Timothy. So this is not the outline, but this is an outline. I encourage you to to try and make it even better. Um, And if you can make it better, I'd love to know uh, maybe some ways that you would so that I can improve mine uh, for the future. But this is intended to be a model to help you to know how to study God's Word. And that's really what this is all about. It's about us opening a book together and saying, okay, let's dive in, let's go verse by verse, and let's see what has God said to us uh, so that we can take this from here uh, and, and study it for the rest of our lives. So that's what we're doing in our time together in, in 1 Timothy. I think to begin 1 Timothy, it might be helpful to ask the question, what, what is the church? Because that's what Timothy is going to be instructed about by the uh, Apostle Paul. One of the things we see when we read through the New Testament is that uh, there is good news that has gone out. And the good news is that even though we're sinners and we've rebelled against a holy God, that God has so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserved on the cross, and then to rise from the dead. And now anyone, no matter where you've been or what you've done, if you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ, you'll be born again. Your your sins will be forgiven. You'll be reconciled to God. His Spirit will dwell in you. But when someone comes to know the Lord, they don't just become a free agent Christian. Rather, we are united into a body, into a family, into what the New Testament calls the church, the ecclesia, the, the assembly of God's people. And this letter is written from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, uh, telling him and us what the church is and how the church is to operate. We're going to see the church is God's household. That if you're a born-again believer, that we are, a, we are a family of brothers and sisters who have been adopted by God the Father through the, through the work of Jesus, our elder brother. And now we are indwelt by His Spirit, being built up into the image of Jesus. That's what the church is. The church is a it's a family. It's what Paul will actually call in this letter the household of God. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, uh, these verses might s- serve as kind of like a, a theme verse for the book. Uh, anytime I'm studying through a book, I try and say, is there a, a verse or two that kind of captures what the book is really all about? And I think that these two verses here, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, do that. He says, I am writing these things to you so that If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So the book of 1 Timothy 
is written by Paul the Apostle to Timothy to instruct the congregation that he's overseeing, which is in Ephesus, about how they're supposed to do life together. Now, the church in Ephesus is a really interesting uh, church. Uh, And the reason is we get a lot of information about it. Of all the churches in the New Testament, it's the one that we get the most information about. We see the church in Ephesus in the book of Acts. We see it where else? The letter to the Ephesians, right? Yep, that's good. That's a give me. What else? Where else? Yeah, so we see it. Yeah, Timothy, good. First and second Timothy, good. What other epistles? John's epistles are likely written in the region of Ephesus. So first, second, third John. And then somebody said the book of Revelation. One of the churches that Jesus speaks to in Revelation 2 and 3 is the church at Ephesus. So we get we get a lot of information about this particular church. And one of the things that we learn very early on about the church at Ephesus is that there was danger coming for them. Just listen to what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 before he departed to go off to Rome. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Again, speaking to the elders, the overseers, the pastors of the church at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul said, I'm about to go, but I need you to be on the watch out because false teachers are going to come. Some may come from the outside, but he warns that some of them come from where? From within. And this letter, Paul is writing to Timothy because he's sending Timothy back to Ephesus because the false teachers have showed up. And they are beginning to confuse people about the teachings of Christ. And Paul is sending Timothy there to go and to to put things in order. These false teachers were attempting to deceive people with with doctrine that, that, that focused on restrictions. No marriage. You can't eat certain things because of what the law of Moses says. This asceticism is a form of legalism that appears to be really godly and really spiritual, but the false teachers were using it to control and to manipulate uh, the people for their own glory and their own, ultimately, uh, financial benefit. So Paul sends Timothy to combat these false teachers, to help bring order to this, this church. And the reason it's so essential is because The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is entrusted to the church. So as goes the church, so goes the gospel. A church that is faithful to Jesus is going to uphold the gospel so it can be seen and heard clearly. But a church that's got twisted teaching in it will begin to twist the message of the gospel and it will lead people to eternal destruction. So you keep the gospel clear by keeping the gospel central by keeping the church healthy. 
And that's why Paul writes this letter to, to Timothy, which we're going to see is important for the church at Ephesus, but it's important for every church in every age. Because the problems, well, they just don't seem to change. Satan's not very creative. The outline that we're going to follow tonight, you'll see on your handout here, is three major sections. Uh, the first is going to be the commission, where Paul is going to tell uh, Timothy to defend doctrine. Chapter 1, commission, defend doctrine. The second major section is going to be chapter 2, 1, all the way through the end of chapter 3, where it's going to be focused on the congregation and orderly worship. And then chapter 4, 1 through, uh, chapter 4, 1 through 6, 20, there's going to be cautions about worldly influences. So Paul's going to tell Timothy, defend doctrine. Then he's going to tell you, hey, this is how the church congregation ought operate uh, together and how they ought worship corporately. And then there's caution that you need because there are worldly influences that you need to, to watch out for. So that'll be, our, that'll be our, our outline. Let's dive in. So chapter 1 here, uh, we're going to see the commission of Timothy, and he's going to be told to defend doctrine. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see here the, the dedication of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So first thing to notice here is the author. Who's the author? It's Paul. How do you know? Because it says it. That's right. Paul, right? And who, who did Paul used to be? He was a former persecutor of the church, right? He, and he was converted when the Lord Jesus appeared to him, and then the, Lord, the risen Lord Jesus personally commissioned Paul to go out and to strengthen churches that he once sought to destroy. So this is who, who the author is. It is, it is uh, it's Paul. Second thing to notice is his authority here. So he's writing this letter, but this isn't just Uncle Paul who said, I'm going to write a letter over to my buddy Timothy. He comes with authority. And uh, what's he call himself here? That's right, an apostle of whom? Of Christ Jesus, right? So before Jesus ascended, he personally commissioned his disciples to be witnesses of his resurrection. We see that in the end of the Gospels and in the opening uh, chapter of the book of Acts. Apostles are ones who are sent with authority, sent in the name of Jesus, King Jesus, to offer forgiveness, forgiveness of sins to anybody who will repent. So this is the authority that, that Paul is coming in. This is the authority that Paul is ministering in. It's by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. It's interesting, God the Father is called uh, our Savior six times in the pastoral epistles. This is a common theme throughout the Old Testament, uh, particularly in one prophet. Anybody know which prophet that is? Starts with an I. That's right, Isaiah. So the prophet Isaiah commonly calls God our Savior, and this is how Paul refers to him here. But I think it's important just to know out of the gate this, or to recognize out of the gate here, this Trinitarian language that highlights the Father as the, the initiator and the source of salvation, and the Son, Jesus, as the one by whom salvation comes. Right out of the gate, we've got this, this Trinitarian representation of, of God coming, showing um, His authority that He has now entrusted to Paul, the, the apostle. 
So again, Paul's message to Timothy and to the churches is not, doesn't find its source in himself or his own desires and what he thinks would be nice in the church. Rather, we must receive this letter with the authority of heaven, which means that we should respond accordingly. This is a word for all of us to humbly receive and to be instructed by. So that's the author. It's Paul. That's the authority. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, the, the audience who it's written to. And it's written to, again, Timothy. Right? To Timothy, my true child in the, the faith. Now, Paul met Timothy during his second missionary journey. In, and we see this in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16.1, we learn that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So he comes from a family where you have a, a believing mom and an unbelieving uh, father. Uh, one comes from a Jewish background, one comes from a Gentile background. And this, this unique background that Timothy has provides both opportunities and challenges all the way through his ministry. You see a lot more of that uh, in the, the book of Acts. But his background, has, it's, it's uniquely used by God. Well, Paul just loved this Timothy guy, and he took him under his wing, and he basically ministered alongside him and traveled with him all, all over the place. And Paul would frequently send Timothy to other churches to care uh, for them. Anybody want to take a guess how many times Timothy shows up in the New Testament? Just take a guess. What'd you say? Are you a prophet? 26. Good job, Butch. All right. 26. 26 times uh, Timothy shows up in the New Testament. So Acts seven times, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thess, Philemon, and Hebrews, right? And then the, the, the pastoral epistles here, the first and second Timothy. I mean, this guy is all over the, the New Testament. Um, and, and Timothy was known to have an excellent reputation among the churches. So any church that spoke about Timothy, they're like, this guy, man, he's the business. He loves the Lord. He's faithful to the gospel. He's courageous, but he's compassionate. This is the kind of guy that Paul wanted to send because he represented the gospel well. Well, one of the places that Timothy spent extended time was in, at the church in Ephesus, which is where this letter is being written to, okay? Uh, Timothy's exact uh, role at the church is a little bit unclear. Both he and Titus appear to be some sort of uh, apostolic delegates, if you will, who are sent by Paul to be there for a season to strengthen the, the churches and to help make sure that elders get established and that they get strengthened in the gospel so that he can then move on and assist other churches and the church can remain healthy after he, after he goes. Um, that's not a, yeah, not something that we see all the time today, but there certainly are people who are really gifted. Um, you might even look at it in this church's history. There was a brother named David Verhi, who was an elder at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, who came here for a season, a handful of years, to help get things straightened out, and then the Lord took him off to help another church, and it seems to be a unique sort of, of gift that he has. Well, he wasn't sent by an apostle, um, but Timothy was, and this was his, his role there. Now, I think, and I'll try and highlight all the way through this book, but we should, we should understand that this letter, though it's written directly to him personally, it's also for all of us. It's for all the, it, it would have been read to the congregation there in Ephesus, 
and it should be read to all the churches throughout the age. Because the instruction, as we're going to see, is not just centered on stuff that was happening in Ephesus. There certainly is some of that. But it's beyond that. The scope is broader. It's intended to happen or be instruction for all churches for all time until the Lord Jesus uh, returns. Um, okay, so that's our author, the authority, and then the audience. And, and then finally, he, he begins here with this, this assurance. Uh, notice there, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This word grace, it simply means unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. It's, it's, a, it's a gift. It's both the enlightening um, and enlivening assistance from God. So it converts people from, sin, yeah, from dead in their sins to be alive to God, but then grace also empowers us to live out what God calls us to. So he comes and he says, grace to you. And he also says, peace to you. So if grace is when we do get what we don't deserve, mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. Grace, you, don't, you do get what you don't deserve, God being kind to us. Mercy, you don't get what you do deserve, wrath. He says, grace and mercy to you. And then peace. Peace, this word um, in Hebrew would have been shalom, this idea of wholeness or completeness. Christ gives peace that reconciles us to God, so we have peace with God, that reconciles us with, with, with ourselves in one sense, where there's an inner subjective peace that we have, and then with one another, where there's a, a, a horizontal peace, where we're brought into a body, into a family. He says, grace, mercy, and peace to you. And again, from the Father and the Son. All these gospel blessings come to Timothy and to us from our Trinitarian God. They are what will strengthen Timothy, um, and they are the currency with which he will minister to this, this flock here in Ephesus. So that is the, the dedication of, of the letter, who it's written to and the authority that he brings it, brings it with. Second thing here in, in chapter 1, let's look at the doctrine that promotes love. The doctrine that promotes love. So he's going to begin to move into the main reason for his writing. Uh, well, this is verses 3 through 7. I'll just read 3 and 4 here to begin. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by, by faith. So we gain a little bit of a, a small window here into the, the circumstances uh, for their, or surrounding their, their partnership here. Uh, Paul and Timothy had parted ways for ministry purposes and for a time. You're going to see Paul wants to get back with him as soon as he can, but in the meantime, Paul's going to head off to, to Macedonia, which would have been to the, the northwest um, of, of Ephesus. It's up where the Thessalonian churches would have, would have been, or the Thessalonian church would have been. And Timothy is to stay there in, in Ephesus to do something. I urge you to stay, to remain there, um, so that you may charge certain persons to not teach any different doctrine. The word charge there, it means to, to command. It means to bring authoritative instruction. So Timothy's supposed to stay there at Ephesus to make sure and command that certain people will not teach any different doctrine. 
So as we mentioned already, there, there appear to be these unfaithful spiritual leaders who are leading the congregation into error. Now, they're, they're largely unnamed. We don't get all of their names. We do get a couple of them uh, down in verse 20, and then we see some over in chapter 2, verses 1 through 115. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll mention a couple of them here in a, couple, in, a, in a minute. But he doesn't just go and list all of the false teachers, but there's some of them, all right? And they are teaching what he calls here uh, different doctrine. Um, in the original language, it's heterodoxy. It's, it's false teaching. It's a different doctrine. Doctrine itself is the summary of teaching. Um, and, and the apostles, what the apostles are, the apostles are stewards of Jesus' teachings. So they were with Jesus. They walked with him. They heard the word. Jesus even promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to mind um, the, the teachings that he had given to them so that they would be able to apply it to the church. So the epistles are letters written by apostles to the churches to apply the teachings of Jesus to the life of the church. And this is what apostles did. They, they, they interpreted and they applied Jesus' teachings to God's people. Well, these false teachers that, that um, Timothy is to be correcting are evidently twisting these teachings of Jesus for personal gain. So it's the exact opposite of John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that Christ might what? Increase. False teachers come in and they say, yeah, Jesus, well, let me twist this so that y'all can really see me. It's satanic. There's this different doctrine. It's a departure from the truth. Um, Second John, letter to the same region here where this church is. Everyone who, 2 John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So according to the Apostle John, progressive theology, it's apostate theology. It sounds trendy. It sells books. It's really interesting but it sends people to hell. Timothy is to stay there and to help this church that's been purchased by the blood of Christ to remain tethered to the truth and not be swayed by these false teachers. Now you notice here there's, there's two ministries going on in, in Ephesus. You have uh, correct doctrine, which is apostolic, and then you have corrupting distractions that here are described as myths and endless genealogies. So myths are, are fables or legends or conspiracy theories that ensnare the, the hearts of the, the weak and the vulnerable and the gullible and the spiritually undiscerning people. I think it's just important to note that those sorts of things were around in those days and they're around in our day as well. There's also referencing here genealogies. That's simply a list of names. We don't know exactly what was going on here. Uh, it may have been Gnostic in nature where um, you, would, you would trace genealogies to be able to figure out different lineages for super spiritual you know, um, reasons. 
I think more likely, though, it's, it's Jewish in nature. And the reason is because you're going to see throughout this letter, Paul's going to talk about how these people, they use the law, but they don't know how to use the law. And they, they seem to be these, uh, these false teachers have some sort of background in Judaism that's some sort of aesthetic and mystical stuff all work together here. One seven says they desire to teach the law. So I think that's probably, they're, they're using the, the, the genealogies that are in the Bible for, for strange, strange ends. And you'll notice here, he, he just describes these genealogies as endless. The word can be translated tiresome. He is going to go on and on and on about this. So that's the two ministries. You have correct doctrine and you have corrupting distractions. And then those two ministries produce two very different kinds of fruits. The corrupting distractions produce fleshly speculation. You see that speculation there? It, it means to, it provokes pride. It's, it's the pooling of, of ignorance. It, it's the sort of teaching that just leaves your, your feet firmly planted in midair. You're just speculating stuff. You ever been in one of those Bible studies where you just, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? What do you think it means? And at the end, everybody's like, no one knows what it means. He's like, that sort of like nonsense is, is what's happening here. This fleshly speculation about conspiracy theories. That's one sort of fruit, and the other is faithful stewardship. So it's either speculation or stewardship. Timothy's to be about the stewardship, that he's been entrusted with this word God gives truth to his people, and he calls them not to edit it, not to update it, not to, to, to reshape it or give it any sort of makeover, right? But simply to steward it, to present it, to clearly, humbly, faithfully proclaim this is what God's Word says. That's the job of every minister in every age. That's the job of every brother and sister who's a member of a church as we disciple one another. That's our job is to be stewards of what God gives us so that we can help one another to see it, to hear it, to apply it, and to live it out for the glory of God and the good of our souls. So these controversies, they they cultivate speculation, suspicion, self-righteousness, hardness of, of heart. But the apostolic teaching, it cultivates something different. It's going to cultivate love and holiness and joy. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So these false teachers, they have aimless speculation, but our aim is different. Our aim is love, to love God as as He deserves and as He's worthy of and to love others as they're worthy of, as fellow image bearers and fellow brothers and sisters in the body. To love them according to God's Word, because God's Word defines what love is. And he says this aim of love, it issues from, it comes from three things, a, a pure heart. A pure heart here in this context is, is motives free from deceit. They don't have another agenda. They simply want to see people love God and and love one another. They have a a good conscience. There's no harboring of sin to where if somebody walks in right now and says, I know something about you, that you're you're terrified. Like there's there's nothing to hide because you're not not stealing money. You're not hurting people. You're 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 not perfect, but you're trying your best to, 
to love God and love one another. It's a good conscience and a sincere faith. That means sincere, it means undivided devotion to the truth and to trusting God here. And again, this doesn't mean that you have strong faith all the time. Jesus said you need a mustard seed, but it's sincere. This is what Paul says, this is what our ministry is about. It's about love that flows from these things. We'll see later on that um, false teachers don't have any of those things. They like it all. Well, verse 6 and 7, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the, the things about which they make confident assertions. Swerving from these things, they abandon the apostolic teaching. They wander from the way of, of truth. And they strayed into empty, vain, meaningless conversations. False teaching is cultivated in a heart that is not pure, in a conscience that is conflicted, and in a faith that is divided. So beware. They desire to be teachers of the law. Now, why do you think somebody would want to be a teacher of the Word, a teacher of the law? What might their desire be? Power. Prestige. Yeah. So, some people get, think, you know, being up on stage is a big deal. And like, this is what they want. They want to be the center of attention. They want, they want, they want to be in, in charge, right? They like power. They like people to know who they, who they are. They like the platform. They like prosperity. Make some money, right? Listen, truth in advertising, um, religion can be a wonderfully wicked cloak for sin. You can, you can play the part, learn the language, and, and the whole time, it's not about God and others, but it's about yourself. Well, these professors of the law, if you will, they, they're peddling ignorance. They sound wise. They sound insightful. They may be really articulate, yet they prove to be fools and wolves who lead astray and drag astray and send people to hell with them. And, and one of the things that, that I think you should, we should all watch out for is that some of the, or the most effective false teachers are the ones who, who know how to make people feel comfortable in their sin. And they use the Scriptures to do it. This is why we must be a people who pray for discernment. This is why you study the Scriptures. This is why you make sure you're at a church that preaches the Scriptures, so that as you're hearing the truth, you'll be able to have your, your powers of discernment trained, as Hebrews 5 talks about, so that you can discern between truth and error. I think this is one of the reasons that in, in, in recent years that the church in America has been so divided and so deceived by so many different sorts of false doctrines that are coming through is because we've just had a diet of like, hey, happy, clappy, Jesus loves you, you don't need to do any doctrine. Like, there's been this, this really shallow approach to the Christian life in so many churches, and it's produced just a lack of discernment. And I think it's ravishing us in our day. Listen, if you... If you love your sin, 
Satan will always send you a wolf to accommodate you. You can always find a false teacher. If, you, if there's a sin that you really like and you want to hold on to, you can be sure that a false teacher will have a word just for you as long as you'll pay him and show up and clap for him. And that's what was happening here in, in this church. And it, I think another study, that if you read through First and Second Corinthians, the Corinthian church was so worldly. And that's why those false teachers were just having a heyday in there is because they loved the world and they loved all the, the flashy stuff and they were caught up in that where Paul's like, stop. He's like, hear the truth of the gospel. So we have a doctrine that promotes love. We also have here in verses 8 through 11 the description of the law's purpose. Description of the law's purpose. Now, we know that the law is good, verse 8, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul begins here this, this section of describing the law's purpose by saying, we know. He's, he's referencing this, this recognized truth by all Christians that, that the law of Moses, meaning the, the, the law is the law of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that it's good. But the way that everyone uses it is not always good. So there's a, there are wrong unhelpful, unholy ways to use the Scriptures. Paul's, Paul says that these false teachers are using the law in ways that Moses and God would say, that's not what it's about. They're not using it lawfully. Again, discernment is needed here. This is why we ought always be praying, Lord, help me to have discernment between what is true and what is false. Because these people, again, are using the Scriptures, but they're using them wrongly. Now, the, the principle for rightly interpreting the law is that the law, he says here, is not laid down for the just. Meaning, the primary purpose of, of the law is to do what? Expose sin. The law is an MRI for your soul that shows here's the sickness, here's what's wrong. But can an MRI fix it? It can only point out what's wrong. The law is the same exact way. The law shines light in and exposes our sin, and then what it's supposed to do is to point us to Jesus, to say he's the one who kept the law, and he's the one who died for all the ways we didn't keep the law, and then he rose to forgive you if you will but come unto him. But that's not how these false teachers are using the law. They're using the law to enslave believers um, under commandments that God has not called them to be, to be uh, pursuing. Now, um, and we'll get into some of what that is as we, as we press in through here, but I, I think it's interesting, just when you look at this list of, of sins, there's 14 sins here. First of all, it's not an exhaustive list. You can read through the rest of the Bible and say there's a lot more sins in, than these. This is just a, it's a summary, but I don't think it's just an arbitrary one. Um, 
there's an insightful uh, suggestion by a brother named Denny Burke, who has a little chart that I have in front of me here, that, that suggests that these sins that are laid out here, that they parallel the Ten Commandments. Just listen to this. The lawless and disobedient, they are the ones who reject God's rule. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The ungodly and sinners, this is often associated with idolatry. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. The unholy, they are not hallowing God's name with their life. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The profane, worldliness, common, which is the exact opposite of what the Sabbath was intended to to cultivate. Those who strike their fathers and mothers, honor your father and mother. Murderers, you shall not murder. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, you shall not commit adultery. Enslavers, you shall not steal. Liars, perjurers, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And whatever else is contrary to doctrine, you shall not covet. It's an interesting observation that seems to be saying the the point of the law is to expose all sorts of sins. This is what it's intended to do, but it's intended to not be an end in itself, but it's a means to an end. And he says here, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So the the word sound here refers to that which which brings life and health. So there is a a kind of teaching that, that gives life because it leads us on the path that God's instruction lays out before us. And there's also a kind of teaching that is not sound, but rather it makes you sick. It makes you unhealthy. It leads in a way that's away from life. And that's, again, what these false teachers are, are peddling in. Now, as with the 10th the commandment, the law's conviction is not merely limited to, to behavior, but to the, the, the heart. I think it's important to point out here that, that the law is, is, is opposed to both doing and desiring of sin. Jesus was very clear about that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. But all faithful teaching of the law will be in, as he says here, in accordance, verse 11, with the gospel. If you're preaching the law rightly, it's going to point you to the gospel, to the good news that Jesus satisfies all the law's demands, and that he is the fulfillment of the sacrifice. He was, had his blood shed for all the ways that we should have been crushed. It's going to point to the sufficiency of Jesus' life, his death, and his, his resurrection. But the false teachers, they were using the law to lead people away from Jesus. And they still would have certainly said Jesus' name, but it was Jesus plus something. And you can't have Jesus plus. You can't have Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus the food laws, Jesus plus feasts, festivals, jubilee, everything. You can't have Jesus plus. Jesus plus the right version of the Bible. Jesus plus your skirt has to be this long. Jesus plus, and you can fill it in with 10,000 other things that people try to add to the requirement of Christ. These false teachers were leading people away from pure, sincere devotion to Christ. I just want you to hear Paul's heart about that as he wrote about the same thing to the, the church in Corinth. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Can you hear his heart? He says, my job is to help Jesus' bride remain faithful until she sees his face. And I'm so concerned that you're getting duped by other lovers who are lying in his name. This is a sort of a passion with which Paul writes this, this letter. So that's the description of the law's purpose. And now we're going to see a display of God's patience. Paul's now going to highlight his testimony and, and show that, that God loves to save these sorts of sinners. This is what he delights in doing. Verse 12, display of God's patience. I thank him who has strengthened, given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Paul's testimony here, as you can see, it's, it's not m- marked by his own righteousness rooted in adherence to the law. Rather, his, his life is marked, he says, by the strengthening salvation of God. He says, my life is inexplainable apart from mercy. He says, I'm a trophy of grace. Paul, before his conversion, he says, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Paul blasphemed God by persecuting Jesus. You remember what what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took Paul's oppression of the church very personally. Because when you touch the bride, the husband knows. When you touch the body, the head in heaven feels. Jesus says, you touch the bride, you're touching me. Why are you persecuting me? His rejection of Jesus was blasphemy. Paul was the enemy of God and of God's people. Yet, he says, I received mercy. He didn't get what he deserved. He received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul Paul says here, "I I was enslaved in my ignorance about who Jesus was. Now, he had heard who Jesus was, and he hated it. So he did not have intellectual ignorance here. He's not ignorant also in a way that excused his sin. He was still guilty before God. But when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, Paul was among those that he directed that prayer about. 
And rather than receiving wrath, Paul got grace. He lacked love and faith, but God opened his eyes to see Jesus, and he believed, and now he loves him. Why? Why did why'd the Lord do this? Well, verse 15, this is what Christ came to do. He came into the world to save sinners, just like those described in verses 8 through 11. So if you tonight, when I was reading verses 8 through 11, you heard a sin in there, or maybe all of them, and you're like, that's me. I want you to know the good news is this. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. He came to rescue lawbreakers. That's why he came. Paul says, that's good news because I, I'm the foremost. Now, what's, what's interesting about the way he says that right there? I am the foremost. He says I'm the worst, yeah. Anybody know anything about verb tenses? You know what a verb is? <laughs> so somebody help me here. What is this? What's, what's he saying? When is this? It's present tense. He doesn't say here, I was the worst. That's true too. But he says, I am. But he's an apostle. Like, this guy's walking with Jesus. You see, the closer you get to God the further you realize just how far away you are from Him. The more you see Him in His splendor and His holiness, the more you become aware that your sin isn't just like, oh, I need to stop killing people, which you should stop killing people, but it's deeper. I remember when I first became a Christian, there were some big sins, if you will, that I stopped doing, and I was like, oh man, I got it. <laughs> and then it was like the Spirit convicted me, oh, that was prideful. Oh no, there's more. You know? Like, there's, it's deep. And the closer one gets to God, the more aware that we are that, you know what? I'm the foremost. I think, yeah, it's a safe assumption of most believers if their posture is, I'm the worst sinner I know. And I don't mean that in, that you can't look at somebody else's life and be like, all right, stuff's bad, messed up. But I'm talking about the fact that the depths of your own sin that you're keenly acquainted with in a way that you're always first seeing your own sin rather than everybody else's. That's a very safe place for a person to be, and it's evidence of spiritual maturity and spiritual sobriety. And I think that's what's behind Paul's word here, of which I am the foremost. Verse 16, Paul sees his salvation as a trophy of God's grace that the Lord holds up and says, if I can save this guy, I can get anybody. It's exactly the way I feel. This was actually some of the verse, first verses that I read after I'd become a Christian. I was like, I know what that means. <laughs> I was like, I believe that right there. Well, the only right response to God's patience and mercy and grace is praise. And that's where he goes there in verse 17. To the king of the ages, the ruler of rulers who has unchallenged authority, right? The immortal one, the one who lives forever. The invisible one. The one who is unable to be described by, by any sort of image. That's why you don't make images. That's why it's the second commandment. He says, don't have anything before me. And don't try and make anything that looks like me. Because you even try and draw me and you're going to miss it and, and bring me down. The only God 
be honor. The one deserving esteem and reverence and glory, the weight of who he is, is put on full display forever and ever. That's how long he deserves this sort of praise. Amen. Amen. The word amen, it means true or you agree. So if you ever hear something that you agree with, you're welcome to say amen. Amen. Thank you. That's how it works. It's kind of like that. So this is why Paul does this here. So that is the display of God's patience. And now finally, devotion to to holy war. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul concludes this, this section commissioning him to defend doctrine by reminding him of the prophecies previously made uh, about you, he says. Timothy would have been well aware of what Paul was referring to here. Um, you're going to see later in 4.14, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This was a, a common practice in the, in the early church. Listen to this, Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, who's Paul the author here, for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So whatever that that public affirmation is, during which evidently some prophecy happens, um, in, in this instance here, Paul's referring back to that. And Timothy would have been very aware of that. So that's why at, at our church, anytime that we, um, there's a, a new elder we have a, a small ceremony where during the main service, we'll have all the other elders come up on stage and the new elder will be here and they will take vows publicly saying, hey, this is how I intend to serve this flock. The congreg- and, and they will promise to do it before God and before the congregation and the congregation will affirm that they're going to um, follow this, this pastor as a, the scriptures command. And then we lay hands on them and we pray for them. It's a way to publicly affirm and it also provides the, the elder with a sort of a reference point to always remember back to um, that, that this is a time when you were affirmed publicly before this congregation and, and you're supposed to, to feel the weight of that, which helps you to both serve faithfully and also to, to persevere. Because one of the things that is, that is true for, for any believer, but particularly those in some sort of, of Christian ministry, is that you've, you've got to know the Lord's called you into it because after you get out, out into it, everything is going to call you back. It's, it's hard. And, and Satan opposes it um, viciously. So Paul, you're going to see throughout the letters, is going to keep reminding Timothy, God called you to this. God called you to this. God called you to this. Which is the strengthening grace he needs to keep going. And what he's calling him to do, verse 18, is to wage the good warfare. Ministry is spiritual warfare. To be engaged by faith, strengthened by grace, and marked by personal holiness. 
This is true of those who serve kind of full-time pastoral ministry, somebody like myself, and it's also true for everybody else who's a Christian. Christians are ministers of the gospel, and we are to minister to one another, and it is spiritual warfare. That's why it's hard. That's why you're interrupted so much in your prayers for one another. That, that's why it's, it's hard. That's why you're afraid to evangelize. It's, it's, it's spiritual warfare. There are real forces that we need to war against. Timothy is being commissioned to that. Then verse 9, he says, Beware, some have rejected the Christ-centered calling and have made shipwreck of their faith. This imagery is, is striking here. You have a, a ship that is heading toward a destination, but if it's uncareful of the dangers that are around it, before it, under it, behind it, it will not make it to its destination. And these two people that he's mentioned here, they were sailing toward salvation. But it appears that they have shipwrecked their faith. They started well, but they did not make it home. Maybe they would have repented. Our hope will, will be that we would meet them in heaven and They'll even say that this letter maybe is something God used to bring him to repentance. But these, these two men being named, named publicly highlight that they probably were former leaders among them. Everybody would have known who these guys are. They may have been some of the ones that Paul even prayed with in Acts 20 that said, from, from some of you will spring up wolves. Listen to this in 2 Timothy 2. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Notice their faith has been upset. They've shipwrecked it. And what's, what's happening because of their ministry? They're leading other people to shipwreck. Which is why Paul says, you've got to get in there. And, and you've, got to, you've got to charge people to not teach strange things and, and to not put up with it. Alexander the coppersmith, 2 Timothy 4, maybe the same Alexander, did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So notice here, he publicly puts these two people on blast, which is a, it's a, it is a practice that sometimes you need to do, especially if those teachers are known to people. It is helpful to name names and to, to highlight the error that's happening to guard people against it. We can take some questions about that here in just a moment. But notice here the consequence of their sin. Paul has handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the same language used in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You are to deliver this man, the sinning man, unrepentant man there in 1 Corinthians 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is a reference to the final step of, of church discipline or excommunication where these people are sent out from the church uh, so that Satan can have his way with them. He's saying, let them follow their false teaching. They're not, 
They're not receiving the message to reject them, so they're going to follow the false teaching. And the hope is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that God would use the consequences, the natural consequences of their sin that come at the hands of Satan to bring them to sobriety, like the, um, uh, the prodigal son when he was out and he had wandered away from his father's house, and while he was at the pigsty, he came to his senses. That is the hope. And we've, we've seen God do that sometimes in church discipline. But all this here in chapter 1, this commission to defend doctrine, Paul is commissioning Timothy to, to defend the doctrine of God's grace. It's a form of spiritual warfare, but he can go in the hope and the grace of God because God loves to save sinners, and he loves to keep sinners, and he's given him the gospel and by which it he is, he is to labor. So this is the commissioning of, of Timothy here. It's kind of everything that's, that's going on in, in the letter kind of orients us for everything that will come, come afterwards. What I'd like to do right now is take the next 10 minutes or so for, for questions. Anything that you've got from this right here that you're like, okay, you said this, uh, what did you mean? Or what about this? Anything, anything that you've got that I, I'll do my best to try to, to answer. Um, be helpful. So if you have a question, put your hand up. Who's running mics for me tonight? So, all right, Sharif and Johan, they are going to do a great job of being standing up and watching to see who is, uh, has their hand up, and you can take mics to them. I see one here and one there. And then if you have a question, you can go ahead and put your hand up, and he will see you, and they'll prepare to come to you next. All right, so tell us your name, and then tell us your question, please. Hi, uh, my name is John, and I was Wondering if you can comment on like verse 18 when Timothy's called like my child. Yeah, my child. So I think he's, he simply sees him as his son in the faith. Um, it does not look according to Acts that Paul led Timothy to Christ, but it's like he's taken him as his own son. It may be that because Timothy's father was a non-believer, that it's kind of like Paul became his spiritual father in a way that was, was unique, and, and Timothy looked up to him in that sense. So I have, by God's grace, a wonderful relationship with my, my earthly father. He knows the Lord now. He came to the Lord after I became a believer. But I also look at a couple other pastors who God has brought into my life and a couple other uh, men in the faith. They're kind of my spiritual fathers too. So I think it's that same sort of, of relationship there. It's, it's, a, it's a, a word of affection. Yeah, good question. Your name, please. Hi, uh, my name's Alice. I Alice. was wondering about verse... 19 where it's mentioning shipwrecking one's faith yep does that mean they had faith in the first place and they lost it or did they not have faith at all like some would say that's great um saving faith is a persevering faith so they didn't persevere in their faith which well as far as we can tell so someone who begins but does not finishes but does not finish proves that their faith uh, was not was not genuine, um, and it's it's similar to the parable that Jesus would give of of um, of the four soils, where you have some that spring up for a moment, looks like, but then fades away. That's apparently what these two guys may be. Um, so, in one sense, it's the Lord's business as to you know uh, what what was actually going on there, but what's what we see is that they strayed from the, from the truth and they have shipwrecked their faith and they should have no confidence that they will inherit salvation because they have 
they've strayed, they didn't persevere in the truth of Christ. Does that help? Yeah. Would you mind if I ask a follow-up? Please follow up. That's great. This is a a good thing to talk about, yeah. So, is there fundamentally a difference in the Bible? Like, are there different words used for when it's referring to saving faith and then when it's referring to faith that might? Okay. No. No. Yeah. No. you'll, You'll see people who says that they believe and then they fall away. So it's all the same, same words. Um, and this is where the Lord knows those who are His, as He says in 2 Timothy. Um, and um, yeah, for us, we want to try to, to, to cultivate, we want to try to cling to the Lord by, by His grace and a community of others who help us to do that. Um, and all we can do is deal in what we see. Um, and this is this is, what, this is what Paul's seeing here, and he's seeing a shipwreck, and it's, it's been dangerous. And it's due to their, they changed the, they lost their rudder, if you will. And it threw them into the rocks of deception. So, yeah. Which I think practically what that should do is it should keep us all humble. I don't, what it's not supposed to do is produce anxiety in the believer. So if, if you are a believer who uh, maybe struggles with assurance of salvation, um, it's, verses like this are not intended by the Lord to freak you out. They, there are warnings like this, like the book of Hebrews, plenty of other places. The warnings are, are means of grace that the Lord uses to push us closer to Jesus. So what a believer should do is when you see that, you should say, Lord, help me to not shipwreck my faith. I mean, that's one of the things as I've been studying this book that I just keep coming back to is, Lord, help me be faithful. Lord, here's all the ways. And Paul's going to get into things that, um, that might hinder your salvation. We're going to see one in chapter 2. We're going to see some later on with the love of money, the root of all sorts of evil. Some have, str- by going after it, have strayed from the faith. Like you're going to see there are snares of Satan everywhere that he wants to try to lure people away from, from, from faith in, in Christ. So, so we should pray, and we should pray for one another, and we should cultivate relationships that help us to to make sure that we're staying, staying true to Christ. Any other questions about anything in chapter uh, 1? I see one hand over here. Is that our last one? Maybe? Two. I see two. We'll take and you got another one. All right, go ahead. Just remember to give us your name, please. Hi, I'm Autumn. Um, I was going to ask, why do you think uh, it says because in verse 13? I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief when we still receive mercy even if we don't act out of ignorance or unbelief. Um, I, I, think, I think what Paul would probably say is that all unbelievers in one sense act ignorantly. If they weren't, he would say they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Uh, they were ignorant of who he really was. That's what sin does, right? Sin blinds us. It deceives us. Um, Satan wants to blind the minds of the unbelievers so they can't see the glories of Christ. So they're ignorant of that. So ignorance does not equal innocent. Just because he was ignorant of the truth doesn't mean that it's not still true. So I can be ignorant of the law of gravity. If I step off a building, it's over, right? Um, and it's the same way that we, we're still accountable before a holy God. So I think he's just highlighting this reality. And he may even be tapping into that verse that I, uh, that I quoted about, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Uh, they, of course, knew exactly what they were doing. They were crucifying somebody, but they didn't know what they were doing. They were ignorant in that sense. So I think that's what he's, I think that's what he's doing. Yeah. I see one hand there and one back there. We'll do those two and that'll be that. 
you first, Jess. Hi, my name is Austin. Uh, I just had a, uh, maybe I missed it as I was, as, as, uh, writing, but just referring to the verse 18 with the prophecies previously made about you. Could you yeah. expound on that again if you did? Yeah, that's that. where um, I, verse 18, it wasn't 18, was it? Where was it? Uh, yeah, it was. Okay. Um, yeah, so reference to 414, he does the same thing. Acts 13, 1 through 4, um, where there's prophets there. We see it, it just appears that at the time of uh, Timothy's commissioning as, as a minister of the gospel, that when they were laying hands on them, on him, either Paul or another one of the prophets spoke some sort of prophecy over him. We don't know the content of that, uh, but he would have known exactly what that was. It was a way of affirmation where the Lord was affirming um, yeah, the ministry that he was giving him and that Paul told him, remember that. God called you to this as a way to encourage him to, to be faithful. Okay. Yeah. Can, I have, can I have a second question? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, earlier on, talking about verses 5, um, if you could, referring to pure heart and a sincere faith, those seem really intertwined yeah. to, to my mind. Could you tease that out, or is there yeah. a way of identifying separating those? Yeah, so I think pure heart here would probably have to do with motives, that, that the, the motive behind the ministry uh, must be one of desiring to see God um, glorified and others magnified. So some of my favorite people are, uh, are young people who are, who've recently come to the Lord, and they, they're just, they want to be in the ministry someday, but they'll just do it for free because they're not in it for pennies. They, they're in it for, they want to see people come to the Lord. Like, they don't care if you can pay me, I don't care, give me some ramen noodles, maybe so I can live. But like, they just, they just want to tell people about Jesus. So it comes from a pure heart versus a heart that, that wouldn't be pure, one that has other ulterior motives, right? And then a good conscience is you don't have harbored sin, um, your, your conscience is clear before the Lord. You're not, um, you know, always rehearsing all, all the things that I've done and I have a guilty conscience, right? Or uh, sincere faith. This is a lack of hypocrisy um, where their, their faith is it's strong, it's sincere, it's not double-minded, uh, but they believe what they say. It's, it's sincere, it's true. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, good. Last one. Hey, I'm Luis, and um, I'm trying to understand uh, verse 9. I'm going to make a statement, and then you tell me if it's heretical or not. Great. Uh, would you say that verse 9 makes an argument that the Mosaic law is fulfilled by Christ and doesn't apply to us anymore? And even though we are under the law of Christ, the Mosaic law is still useful to convict the lawless, um, kind of like maybe like Ray Comfort does it uh, in evangelism when he goes through the Ten Commandments. Um, yes. So I think the what Paul is doing here is he's highlighting... The primary purpose of the law is to expose sin, and that it should, if used rightly now, should point you explicitly to Jesus. So I think, you know, whether uh, Ray's tone is what I would do or not, and whether I would do it on camera or not, that's all other stuff, but um, I think it's helpful to help people to see that they've sinned against a holy God. I think there's various ways that you can do that. I think one of the clearest ways is with the, the Ten Commandments is very helpful. Um, I don't think it's the only way to do it. I think, you know, uh, Paul in, second, uh, in uh, Romans 2 talks about the, the conscience, creation. These are other things that Gentiles could uh, be pointed to. Um, you know, why, why do you think you feel bad about something? Um, why do you hide stuff? Well, it's because you're made in the image of a God who's holy, and, um, you know, you could go different directions. So I don't think it's the only way, but I do think it is a helpful way, right? 
I don't think, I think Paul would be really elsewhere. He's going to be, he's going to say that the law itself is instructive. It still has meaning for, for believers. It is the law of Christ is chiefly going to be seen in love God, love your neighbor. That's the fulfillment of the law. So, yes, he's, he's going to say if you love your neighbor, you are going to fulfill the law, right? Um, so, yes, in that sense, it's still instructive. I think what he's getting after here is the wrong way to use it is to do a Jesus plus where you're trying to bring people back under the Mosaic system. So if tonight I got up here and said, okay, guys, I've been studying the Bible and we are supposed to eat kosher. And if, if you're not eating kosher, like the, the Lord has judgment waiting for us. So no more bacon, no more catfish, no more scallops, no more crawdads. It's over, okay? Um, if I, and if that began to be my message, or if it was that plus you got to get baptized or your sins aren't forgiven or whatever else you want to add, Jesus plus something, that's when law becomes a distortion of the gospel, and it's a misuse of the law, and it's a different gospel. Does that make sense? Good. Or you got to be, you got to have Jesus plus Republican, or Jesus plus Democrat. There, take that one to the break. Let me pray for us. Um, <laughs> let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll take a quick break. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would indeed help us to yeah, be a people who um, delight in true doctrine, and might that move us to defend it, um, and we pray that you would guard us, and Lord, we pray that none of us would, yeah, would see our, our faith shipwrecked, and Lord, would you, would you help us to cling to Christ, and might you bring us home. In the name of Jesus, amen.